Looking for health info? This is Health U's House Call, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's podcast. We're here to provide you with the tools and resources to make informed decisions about your health. Here, our expert providers will provide you with wellness tips, information, and general health advice. This is House Call. Whether it's a sharp, sudden jolt, or a persistent nagging ache, back pain can be debilitating. And the CDC notes that women are more likely to experience back pain than men. But why? Today, we're going to explore the top causes of back pain in women and what you can do to find relief. Joining us today are two clinical experts who can give the full picture on root causes to this pain and your treatment options. We have pain management specialist, Dr. Mike Mizrahi, and OBGYN, Dr. Joseph Boganum. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Awesome. So before we get started on all things back pain for women, could you share a bit about where you practice and how you got into each specialty? We'll start with you, Dr. Misrahi. Thank you. Um, So my primary training is in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Uh, After that three-year residency, I did a pain fellowship at the University of Michigan for a year. And my practice is basically predicated on seeing patients with chronic pain, a lot of musculoskeletal pain syndromes, and low back and neck pain. Perfect. So glad to have you here for that. Thank you. Happy to be here. Dr. B, how about you? All right. Well, I trained, I uh, went to medical school in Philadelphia, Drexel University College of Medicine, and uh, completed my uh, training in the Bronx at Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, and I'm now practicing as an OBGYN generalist, um, primarily in Wall Township and uh, out of Jersey Shore University Medical Center. Uh, primarily, I treat both uh, obstetrics, so we see pregnant women, uh, pretty large obstetrics practice, as well as uh, annual GYN visits and any GYN problem, including uh, surgery if required. All right. Perfect. So we have the the full picture here. So just to kick us off, either of you can feel free to jump in. Why would women be more likely to experience back pain than men? So I think it depends on the the population. We kind of can break it down into young women um, and older women. So I I think kind of just the low-hanging fruit here is, you know, whenever you think of older women, you think of osteopenia, osteoporosis. Um, I think a lot of younger women don't really realize the risk that they're kind of faced with as time goes on. Um, A lot of them don't take the necessary supplements uh, or do the proper weight-bearing exercise to prevent something like that. Um, And a common cause of back pain in these post-menopausal women are compression fractures. Uh, So some of the things that younger women can do um, What is is a compression fracture? So a compression fracture is a fracture of the vertebral body instead of it having a nice square shape to it, it's actually wedge-shaped. Um, and that can happen for a lot of reasons. Sometimes there's trauma, um, and in patients that have osteopenia or osteoporosis, it might just be lifting a small weight, uh, bending the way you shouldn't have. You have very brittle bones because they don't have the necessary nutrients to make sure that they stay strong. Interesting. Okay, Dr. B, how about you? Yeah, I mean, go, going along that, if you know, we can start definitely start talking about postmenopausal women um, or even perimenopause, which is uh, defined as around the time of menopause, average age being about 51 and a half. There are certain recommendations that we as OBGYNs who see women typically once a year, sometimes more for their well women visits, uh, recommend to prevent osteoporosis um, or the precursor, which is osteopenia, just weakened uh, bone or decreased bone mass. 
Um, those things include vitamin D and calcium supplementation. Um, I won't go into the specific doses, but they vary by age. Um, um, and we, importantly, screen for osteoporosis, so we look for it, and that's the number one thing in, in, with regard to prevention is actually finding the issue. And so it's recommended that all women uh, above the age of 60, 65 and above obtain their first DEXA scan, a D-E-X-A. And that's a scan looking at uh, the bone strength and bone mass, and that's what diagnoses either osteopenia or osteoporosis. Would that be something they'd get through an OBGYN office? So typically, um, as OBGYNs, we definitely order DEXA scans. A lot of women have contact uh, frequently with their primary care providers who can also order DEXA scans, uh, these bone scans. So really, the, uh, either the OBGYN or the primary care provider. Not only that, one thing I want to point out is by the time patients come to me because they have these vertebral compression fractures, in some ways it might be a little bit too late. Um, and so once this is diagnosed, they should be on the right kinds of medications to prevent this from happening and prevent this from getting worse. Things like bisphosphonates, whether they're pills, injectables, there's a lot of different things that they can do once it's diagnosed to prevent this from becoming a larger issue. And uh, yeah, and good point. And, and just an important thing to, to note too is that certain women, you know, even 50 and above, between the ages of 50 and 64, um, and it mentioned this part before, it, it are recommended to get a bone scan earlier if they have certain risk factors, um, including uh, cigarette use, long-term alcohol use, uh, and certain ethnicities have a higher uh, rate of osteoporosis. And so we are doing bone scans earlier in some women. Interesting. So it sounds like the biggest reasons for back pain is bone health or trauma. Is that right? Yes, it's, it's two of the big reasons. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say it's the biggest. There's a lot of other things we'll go into. Um, but that's something that I think is important to start with because a lot of younger women don't think about it. Um, there are procedures that I can do or doctors like me uh, can do called vertebroplasty. You know, once these compression fractures are found, if early enough, to try to minimize the long-term damage of these things. Um, but it's important for young women to hear this too so that they take the necessary steps now uh, so it's not an issue what in their are older those age. Steps? So some of the things we mentioned, um, calcium and vitamin D, Dr. Okay. B mentioned that, um, weight-bearing exercise. So a lot of women, and, and men for that matter, like to do cardio. Uh, but aside from just cardio for exercise, you really should put the stress on your bones by using weight-bearing exercise. That's not something I want to hear. I'm a runner, you know. Yeah, within, within <laughs> reason. Um, I mean, the, 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 the weight-bearing exercise... Um, kind of can set you up for other problems we'll go into, kind of the normal things that you'll hear in men and women about disc issues. Mm -hmm. um, but that small amount of weight that's, that does not put you at higher risk for those disc issues um, does go a long way in maintaining good bone health. So what are some exercises, I guess, that is weight-bearing? So, so one thing I like to tell my older patients, uh, if you do like to go for a walk, just use little ankle weights. Mm -hmm. Or if okay. you don't want to tie them onto your ankles, hold a little two-pound weight, five-pound weight while you're walking. Um, there's little tricks that you can use to just add a little bit more weight-bearing to your normal walk, jog, whatever it is. Certainly just to, just to cut in, of course, uh, a lot of what we're talking about so far is beyond the reproductive age. Uh, so we talk about reproductive age women and then perimenopause and postmenopausal women. Um, but certainly, you know, we have it to even touch on lots of the causes of back pain in women who are of reproductive age, whether it's um, related to uh, obstetrics, and, and of course we'll discuss that, or GYN causes. And there are lots of gynecological causes that can cause back pain as well. That was kind of what I was going to dive into on just like, so 
bone health and trauma. We were talking about that strengthening. Are, is this the same as it would be for men aside from anything that would be like reproductive wise? It, it should be, yes. Um, however, um, with women, the reason why, um, it just by default, women are at a higher risk for um, low bone mass, osteoporosis, uh, is because of that drop-off in estrogen after menopause. So after the age of menopause, just, um, just to recap what menopause is, is a decrease in ovarian function. And so e uh, hormones like estrogen, which are protective of the bone, so they protect bone mass, they protect cardiovascular health, um, but that s gradual decrease does weaken the bone, which is why in women um, with that drop off in the hormone, they are at a higher risk of osteoporosis. I definitely would, would agree with that. Um, I've seen plenty of men with compression fractures. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them have been because of some sort of trauma. You'll have your occasional cancer that might lead to this, but in women, uh, there's way, way higher of an incidence of patients who do not have trauma, who did not have a history of trauma, but do have these compression fractures just because of what Dr. B mentioned. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Mizrahi. So I guess for younger women looking for prevention, you mentioned vitamin D, weight bearing. What else, what else can we be doing to keep our backs nice and healthy? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, one of the things is screening for um, and, and evaluating what might be causing the back pain. So, you know, not all back pain is um, related to bones and, and what we've been talking about so far. So uh, I'll just give some an example. In, in, let's say, a 20, 30, 40-year-old woman who comes in with uh, a, a complaint of back pain, whether or not it's accompanied by pelvic pain, which is, all, which is a common um, symptom that goes along with back pain in, in reproductive age women, you really want to do a full evaluation, which involves uh, a detailed visit at the OBGYN. Um, and may include imaging. And so one of the more common types of imaging to look for pelvic causes of uh, back pain, for instance, would be an ultrasound, which is a pretty low risk, no radiation imaging modality, or some way that we look at the pelvis uh, to really diagnose what might be going on. And there are a few things that can be found. And for those patients that don't have pelvic pain, right, just run of the mill, low back pain, um, I'm the kind of doctor that you wanna see for that. Same, same type of screening. Uh, asking all the important neurological questions, any numbness, tingling, weakness, bowel bladder issues. Uh, and once all those things have kind of been ruled out, we assume it's related to either the bone or the disc, possibly arthritis if they have you know, a history of participating in gymnastics at a younger age. Uh, these are some things that might pop up on imaging if patients did not improve with medications, physical therapy. Uh, one other thing as far as exercises to prevent back pain, which we cannot underestimate, is maintaining adequate core strength. So that, that's a huge thing, uh, both in the OBGYN population, uh, but also patients that have not had any kind of pregnancies and um, men as well. It's, it's, it's really important to make sure that the core is strong because that's really a setup for back issues as time goes on. Definitely. What are some good core activities you guys like to do? I could say the first thing would be planks. Okay. You know, run reg regular, straightforward plank, side planks. Um, you can do squats, but the right kind of squat, making sure that your form is proper, that you're not kind of bending at the hip. S bending the lumbar spine actually would put pressure on the discs and make you a little bit more prone to developing disc herniations that lead to back pain. Uh, but strengthening the legs, making sure the glutes, the hamstrings, the quads, they're all flexible and have the strength to support your body in different activities that you want to do. 
cool. That sounds good. So you touched a little how gynecological health, like pregnancy, menopause, how that can make them make a woman more susceptible to back pain. Can pregnancy, you, you mentioned, you know, menopause with the drop of estrogen. How does pregnancy impact back pain? I could imagine like the weight itself, like all of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you basically hit on it, the weight, but, you know, mm-hmm. just to delve into that a little further, um, as the pregnancy grows and the uterus expands in size, um, the, the uterus goes from um, a, a size of a fist, basically, to, to the uh, ability to accommodate a baby, which is fairly large and about 40 centimeters. And so that increased weight really changes the center of gravity. And what that does is it puts a lot of strain on the low back to really bear a lot of that weight. Um, furthermore, the abdominal muscles are, are stretched out when that happens. Um, and lots of the abdominal muscles um, are implicated in low back pain because they really do provide a lot of the support, the core support, like Dr. Mazar, was saying before, and can increase back pain during pregnancy. So unfortunately, back pain is one of the more common complaints during pregnancy. Um, now, we know later in in pregnancy when contractions start, and those can be Braxton Hicks contractions, which are false labor contractions, certainly those contractions themselves, it's basically the uterus has lots of muscle, and when it contracts, um, you can feel those contractions in the low back. Um, So that's really what's going on when we talk about pregnancy. So for our pregnant ladies listening, what can they do to find relief if they do have this back pain? Yeah, so um, certain things that can help. So we're talking about the center of gravity shift uh, during pregnancy. And uh, from a mechanical perspective, there are um, pregnancy binders, uh, girl support, basically. These are binders you can get online or anywhere uh, for a decent price. And um, what it does basically is you wrap it around your belly. Some, t- some of them go right over, some of them go under the belly, but they provide support. And they try to take some of that um, burden off of the low back uh, to support the expanding uterus and the growing belly. Um, so that's one thing that can be done. With regard to medication, now for most of the pregnancy, we try to advise against uh, medications called NSAIDs like ibuprofen, um, but Tylenol certainly is still safe in pregnancy, and we do recommend Tylenol for cramping or any pain with pregnancy. Um, and then there are certain exercises and stretches that can be done. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because it's like once you're already super pregnant, like what can you be doing? Is it still safe to do squats. You, yeah, you can't really plank when you're pregnant, can you? Well, that's a, that's a great point. <laughs> uh, actually, you can. Um, I haven't Mike? seen it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, let me tell you. You can if, if you're able to. You can. I, I do want to dispel a myth that it's okay. that it's not safe to exercise during pregnancy. Certainly, there are conditions during pregnancy where we do want uh, some safe and decreased activities and may not want to do you know all out exercise. Don't do but, an Ironman. Right? Yeah, try not. Yeah, try not to do the Ironman. Although I I, I have to <laughs> actually backtrack and say that I've had patients who uh, have run the marathon. You know, 20 weeks pregnant wow. and uh, the New York City Marathon. So. Pretty amazing. I, I always tell people at the first OB visit, um, exercise is recommended three to five times a week of moderate to vigorous exercise. I, I always joke that I'm not meeting those recommendations. Uh, cer- <laughs> certainly not, and I probably should work on that. Um, but exercise is safe. It's recommended. And um, I always say just try not to set personal records. But right. to your point, you can definitely continue to exercise. It definitely helps um, for core support, low back support. Might help to decrease some of the back pain associated with pregnancy. I, th- I, I think I think just like everything else, prevention is key, right? So um, you mentioned weight center of gravity. I think that's spot on. Making sure you're not gaining too much weight during pregnancy, right? There's, you know, I kind of forgot this uh, calculation. That's why you're here, Joe. <laughs> um, but if you're only supposed to gain 30 pounds based on your height and the size of the baby. Try to keep to that 30. Don't 
say, oh, I'm pregnant, just let the, let the wheels fall off and right. gain 50, because that's a setup for, for back pain. Um, I, I do think that as far as exercise is concerned, if you're not exercising before pregnancy, don't start exercising now. So you want to kind like of walking though. We would still walking, want people to be moving, fine. right? Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Walking's fine, but in terms of different like strengthening or trying to really prevent yourself from having a problem later, you should almost treat it as like a prehab, right? I tell a lot of patients of mine that end up going for spine surgery because of the injections that I do aren't working. Don't just take this downtime, you know, as a free pass. You want to exercise, strengthen the muscles that are important to your recovery postoperatively. I kind of see pregnancy as the same same thing. You should be exercising beforehand so that you can continue that baseline level of activity during the pregnancy mm-hmm. and all should be well. Dr. Mizrahi, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I will say one thing, other thing that we, that's really important when it comes to pregnancy and pregnancy planning is the preconception visit. All right, so um, ideally, I mean, people get pregnant, of course, uh, at, at all times. It's unexpected mm-hmm. a lot of times. And of course, that's the beauty of pregnancy. But uh, we do try to have a preconception visit for couples and women who are planning to become pregnant. Um, and part of what we talk about is exercise and trying to get and trying to optimize health prior to pregnancy, and certainly um, tolerance of exercise is one of the things we focus on. Yeah. So I was just thinking, and I don't know if this is true or not, but in pregnancy, don't your, do your abs split? That's not normal, right? But I'm sure that's going to impact recovery for for women and could lead to back pain if you have no yeah, abdominal so, strength, so you, right? You hit, yeah, another okay. nail that you hit right on the head. There's something called a diastasis recti, mm-hmm. which I'll let Dr. Joey over here kind of expound upon. But essentially, this goes back to the core conversation. If your core strength's not there, either because you're not exercising those muscles or because there's a giant gaping hole in mm-hmm. those muscles as the result of pregnancy, that's going to lead to back pain. Right. Yeah, so certainly diastasis recti is uh, common during pregnancy. Um, you know, somewhere probably up to 30% of women will experience diastasis recti. And like we talked about before, as the uterus expands, um, a lot of the times the muscle in the abdominal wall, including the rectus muscles, will separate. Um, now, after pregnancy, well, I always say it's very important to, um, as soon as a woman is able to, and typically it's after, you know, sometime after the postpartum visit when we make sure that everything's healing okay, uh, really get back to core exercises as soon as possible, which can help to, um, number one, fuse and strengthen the, the, the rectus muscles. Um, now, uh, oftentimes during a cesarean section, um, as those rectus muscles are separated to deliver the baby, uh, ultimately, uh, they are sometimes um, put back together, although that's not always the case, um, given that it hasn't really been shown that doing that decreases the risk of diastasis recti because the muscles are pretty good at coming back together by themselves. Um, But certainly those core exercises postpartum are going to be really important. And this is where um, a shout out to my pelvic physical therapist, pelvic PT. I think they have a really, really strong role in postpartum recovery and even during pregnancy. All right. Let's keep that core strong. Definitely. Uh, So while we're on the pregnancy conversation, I hope you don't mind. I get a lot of people that walk into my office and tell me, the epidural that I got during pregnancy led me to have back pain for the rest of my life. Uh Uh-oh. I'm sure you've heard this too. Yep. Um, So it's true that epidurals during pregnancy can lead to certain complications, which we don't really have to go into now. But far majority of the time, it's not the epidural that did this. Uh, Just like Joey said before, the weight gain, uh, the soft tissues that are stretching, I think because the hormones called elastin, if I, my memory is correct. That's correct. There's a lot of different things that set your body up to have disc herniations, to have sciatica. Part of these things are necessary to actually be able to deliver a baby. 
um, I, I, I just wanted for all the women that are listening, I, I want to just reassure them that if it was the epidural that caused this, you, you would know you'd have pretty significant long-term neurological complications as a result of the epidural. 99 point something. Like numbness and tingling? Is that exactly. what you mean by neurological? Yeah, okay. thanks. Thanks for uh, clar- clarifying that for me. I'm going to keep um, you at yeah, a baseline you got it, you for got it. all so, the rest of the non-clinical yeah, folks. So, so the neurological symptoms that I'm talking about are numbness, tingling, weakness of the lower extremities, maybe bowel bladder issues. A lot of the complications of epidurals have to do with direct trauma to the nerves or to this lining of the uh, spinal cord called the dura, which sometimes women after pregnancy develop something called a post-dural puncture headache because there's actually a small tear in that lining. Um, but far majority of those, and Joe, you might be able to back me up on this, are managed conservatively and don't need any procedures to fix it. No surgeries, no epidural blood patches, which is an injection into the epidural space. Far majority are managed conservatively with just kind of lying down, caffeine, Tylenol. Yeah, absolutely. I do, I do want to, that's really great information. Of course, from the OB perspective, I would want to add importantly that um, the, the risks of any long-term issues from an epidural are exceedingly, exceedingly low. Um, and of course, you always hear stories um, because women who've had really great epidurals typically aren't going around telling people that. It's really the bad stories that you hear, right? As, yeah, as with anything yeah. else. For sure. So just want to emphasize that the risk of these things is pretty low. And usually if they do happen, like Dr. Mizrahi was saying, the treatment is very conservative. And so typically they get better on their own, but there are certain conservative treatments that can be done and injections if necessary. Okay, good to know. I was going to ask. I'm like, this better not be common, right? Um, no, no, please. If you're if you're wanting pain control during labor, please ask for your epidural. Our anesthesiologists are wonderful, and uh, they will make your experience a lot better. I agree 100%. Yeah, keep it comfy out there. <laughs> um, so we talked a little bit about what, what women can do to kind of keep that core strength. Are there any like lifestyle activities that are like big no-goes that are like really bad for your back that you see a lot of patients are are exhibiting, I guess? So s- some people in the audience may not like hearing this, but certain high-intensity exercises, especially if you've been just kind of sitting on the couch for the last three months and then you decide, you know what, my New Year's resolution, mm-hmm. I'm going to get fit, I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to take this CrossFit class. Probably not a good idea. Um, On the one hand, it's, like I mentioned, a very high-intensity type of exercise, a lot of weights being thrown around. Um, Definitely a bad idea if you're not working towards that. Not to say that CrossFit is bad for everyone, but you have to work up to that level of activity. That's a big one that I see. Yeah. For women who do have chronic back pain, what are some treatment options we can point towards? So it's somewhat dependent on the cause of the back pain. Generally, for any pain problem, there are three options of treatment. Option one would be conservative management with medications and physical therapy. And generally, we give this about six weeks, eight weeks, maybe up to two to three months just to make sure, because a lot of times these things get better on their own. Medications are like pain management, anti-inflammatories, that kind of thing? Exactly. So, So the pain management medications, right? A lot of times people think that this is narcotics, opioids. I almost don't prescribe opioids at all. The medications that we do use for chronic pain and chronic pain conditions, specifically back pain, are things like anti-inflammatories, Advil, Motrin, ibuprofen. We do use Tylenol from time to time. If it's a back pain that also has some sort of numbness, tingling, sciatica component to it, 
Sometimes we use nerve pain medications like gabapentin, like Illyrica. We can use muscle relaxers. A lot of these things do somewhat have scary side effects, which are extremely rare, um, but oftentimes are necessary, even if it's just for a what short period of time. What are these scary side effects? Sorry. More common side effects. It just makes people a little drowsy, mm-hmm. maybe a little dry mouth, upset stomach. And most of them are, are manageable. A lot of times patients that are on these medications just kind of get used to it and those side effects go away and they do find it helpful. I would say that I've seen patients on both ends of the spectrums. There are patients that say, this is the worst drug ever. I can't take this. Why'd you give this to me? And then there are other patients that say, this is the best thing. You've changed my life. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody is different. We do have to realize that. But kind of broadly, the medications that we were talking about are anti-inflammatories, Tylenol, nerve pain medications, uh, muscle relaxers, but for an early on type of disc herniation, sometimes even a short course of steroids are helpful. Option two, if medications and physical therapy don't work, is kind of where my expertise comes in, are injections, nerve blocks, ablations, things of that nature. What's an ablation? An ablation, it's going to sound a little scary, but it's actually um, a procedure where before we get to that, ablation means destroying. There are ways to destroy those nerves. But uh, before we start, you know, destroying anything, we want to make sure that if we do, it's going to work. So we do something called a diagnostic medial branch block, where we numb the nerves that carry the pain from arthritis of the lower back to where we can perceive it. And if that works, we can then go back at another date and burn those nerves. Now that, it does sound scary. These are not the same nerves that are involved in sciatica. These are not the ones that go to muscles of your leg, because if we burn those nerves, you wouldn't be able to walk properly. These are very, very small nerves whose main function is really just to carry pain from the structures of the lower back to where we feel it. Is there any risk, I guess, to, if these are nerves that are signaling that, hey, there's a problem here, is there a risk of kind of getting rid of that signal? So I I left that part out. I'm glad you picked up on it. But these nerves don't actually only carry pain from the arthritis of the lower back. They actually go to these very small group of muscles called multifidi. And, you know, we don't really know the impact that these nerves have on those muscles. We do see in imaging, like MRIs, uh, in patients that have had these procedures in the past to show that these muscles are kind of wasting away a little bit. But it's not been linked to any kind of functional decline, meaning even though these nerves are destroyed and they do send signals to these tiny muscles of the back, it hasn't really impacted our patient's quality of life or function. So... We're not really sure. Okay. All right. So that was option two, right? Yes. Option what two. Three? I'm glad you're following along because I forgot about <laughs> option three. And I try to forget about <laughs> option three all the time um, because option three is surgery. Okay. Now, I'm not a surgeon, uh, but if everything that we do doesn't work, medications, therapy, injections, procedures, and you know you need the surgery, then we would send you to the appropriate surgeon to fix your problem. Pain aside, there are certain times where patients have a disc herniation or have sciatica and I do injections and they feel better, meaning that there's no pain. But if there's weakness of the leg because the nerve in your back is compressed, that might be a ticket to see the surgeon anyway. So that's part of the reason why I like to follow with patients somewhat regularly, even if they have significant improvement in their pain and quality of life. If their MRI shows bad enough of a problem, I like to keep my eyes on them. So talking about... um 
low back pain as it relates to gynecological problems or GYN issues? Um, well, there are lots of them. Let's talk about common things being common. The first one being periods. So um, menstrual cramps, right? So what happens uh, when you ovulate, um, the, the lining of the uterus is thickened. That's the inside of the uterus, the endometrium. And then during your period, the lining sheds. Right? There's, if there's no pregnancy there, uh, the lining says, well, nothing to support here, and so we're going to shed, and that happens during the period. But the way that the lining is shed is by the uterus contracting. So we talked about labor contractions, and these aren't really labor contractions, of course. Women's not in labor when she's having her period, but it is the uterus contracting. So it is a, a form of a, a muscle contraction that can be painful. Um, and so common treatment options, again, common things being common, are uh, these anti-inflammatory drugs. So things like um, uh, ibuprofen, uh, like we discussed before, and there are lots of them on the market. Um, but then commonly birth control. So the way that birth control helps with periods in general and can help with low back pain associated with the menstrual period is by suppressing ovulation. And so when a woman is on uh, a combination pill, meaning it has both estrogen and progesterone, what's happening is, happening is that ovulation is suppressed. And so ovulation just doesn't happen. Uh, and because ovulation doesn't happen, that lining really never thickens to where it normally would. And so uh, there's not much to shed, right? Mm -hmm. So there's not really a period that happens when someone's on a birth control pill. And that can really help with the low back pain associated with periods. So that, that brings to mind something that I try to ask from time to time. You know, when people come in with back pain, I always try to find out what makes it better, what makes it worse. And every so often, I'll get a, I'll get a woman who tells me, you know, for whatever reason, my pain seems to be worse, you know, when, when I have my period. Um, and so just this kind of like one-liner that I throw out there because I don't really know much anymore about your line of work. <laughs> right. Um, I say, oh, you know, make sure it's not endometriosis. I would go see your GYN. Right. Yeah, that's a great segue. I mean, uh, you know, endometriosis is a disease. And just to kind of recap and or explain for the first time what endometriosis is, the glands or, you know, the secretions, the cells that are in the uterus, the lining of the uterus that um, basically, um, let's go back. Let's talk about what endometriosis really is. Um, so there are glands uh, in the lining of the uterus that we discussed before. And when these glands uh, leave that area and, and kind of invade to other areas of the body, whether it's the muscle of the uterus, or even um, the ovaries, the abdominal cavity, um, or even towards the back, right? And so you can have these implants, um, endometrial gland implants, around the pelvis and around the abdomen. That's called endometriosis. And essentially- How are they moving? I'm sorry, I had to stop you. That's a great question. <laughs> so you asked kind of the million dollar question when it comes to endometriosis. There are various theories as to how um, endometrial tissue ends up in other places. It's called yeah. ectopic implants. So how do they get there? A few different scenarios, a few different theories rather. The more common one is something called retrograde menstruation. That's a theory where when a woman has her period, some of that blood, which contains probably some endometrial cells, is going backwards through the tubes, right, and going out into the abdominal cavity and then finding its way, implanting somewhere, and there you go, you have glands. So that's been the leading theory for a long time. There are other theories. Maybe these uh, glands are somehow uh, being created uh, de novo, meaning they're just forming in these new places. But either way, wherever these implants are, and again, they can be on the sacrum and the low back, so through the abdominal cavity, all these things are connected. And during the menses, Anywhere there's endometrium, including the lining of the uterus, and then wherever these implants are, they'll become stimulated. Um, and that's what really causes the pain, is the stimulation of those endometrial implants wherever they may be during endometriosis. So birth control certainly helps with that, right? Because we suppress ovulation and none of these implants are stimulated. So that definitely helps. Um, but ultimately, the treatment for endometriosis, if medication doesn't work, like Mike said, usually the last line is surgery.
That's what I was just going to ask. Do you go in and you just remove them from... You how can. do you know where they are? That's a great question. I mean, the only way to actually, and I left this out, the only way to truly diagnose endometriosis is by surgery. So uh, if somebody tells you they have endometriosis or if you've, told, you've been told you have endometriosis uh, but you haven't really had any surgery, technically um, it, it's, it's a presumed diagnosis. Um, you really have to go in with a camera, laparoscopic surgery typically, and then you biopsy uh, whatever might look abnormal. And if the lab tells us, yep, that's endometrial glands, then you have endometriosis. And uh, by removing those implants at, for biopsy purposes, but by removing anything that looks abnormal, um, that, that's actually a treatment option because you're removing all that abnormal tissue uh, and then there's really nothing there to be stimulated during your periods. Um, ultimately, in the more severe cases, um, a, a hysterectomy is recommended where the, uh, the uterus, cervix, tubes, sometimes the ovaries uh, are removed. And in really, really advanced endometriosis cases where these implants are on the bowel, right? And they can cause uh, diarrhea issues, GI issues. Sometimes part of the bowel is removed too. So these are, we're talking about really, really advanced cases of endometriosis. Um, most of which, most of women uh, don't have those advanced cases. And usually they're more mild and uh, are helped with just a birth control pill. I have two questions now. One, how common is endometriosis? And two, wouldn't surgery, that has to take forever if you're just kind of searching around looking for abnormal tissue. Like, is it a super long surgery? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it's, it's more common um, than we think because uh, on average it takes years, uh, sometimes five to 10 years on average from the start of symptoms to a diagnosis for most women, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, and certain... Um, public efforts have really pushed OBGYNs and other physicians to think about endometriosis when women present with low back pain and other pelvic pain issues. Um, but up to 10% of women will have endometriosis. Um, women with chronic pelvic pain, about 10 to 20% of those patients will have endometriosis. So is the surgery very long? Um, not necessarily. When you put the camera inside, some, sometimes it's very obvious. Um, but the endometriosis implants have a certain appearance. And so you might find them on the bowel, you might find them on the ovary, or just on the uh, what's called the peritoneum, which is the lining of the abdominal cavity. So it doesn't take very long, but these surgeries can be pretty complicated. And certainly there are specialists, minimally invasive surgery specialists, who um, a lot of times will focus their practices on endometriosis itself, given how complicated it can be. Interesting. Thank so you. So listening to all this surgery talk, I did have a question for you. Sure. Um, Turning the table. Sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> You know, sometimes when I order imaging for my patients, let's say a routine x-ray because they have low back pain, I'll see a gigantic fibroid. Do fibroids cause pain? Is that indication to take it out? Can you, can you tell me what to do with this? And what's a fibroid, right? <laughs> what's a, yeah, yeah, what's yeah, a so, fibroid? So this wasn't planned uh, for the listeners out there, but it's a great question. I mean, that's probably... Uh, so fibroids are one of the more common um, GYN pathologies. What I mean by that is abnormalities in the, in the female genital tract. And so fibroids are um, typically... They're in the uterus, typically, and they're benign overgrowths of the muscle of the uterus. So they're basically balls of muscle. Um, and they can be um, anywhere in the uterus. They can be in the cavity. They can kind of push into the cavity, causing abnormal bleeding. They can be in the wall of the uterus, or they can be on the surface of the uterus. And depending on the location and the size of the fibroids, they, the two more common symptoms uh, of fibroids are uh, heavy menstrual bleeding or abnormal uterine bleeding, um, as well as pelvic pain and back pain. So in really severe cases where the fibroids are large enough to push on the actual back, um, or cause inflammation to the point where uh, just the inflammation itself is causing the, that kind of uh, 
uh, inflammation in the muscle itself, in the abdominal wall, in the back, those fibroids really can be bothersome. Uh, abdominally, pelvic pain, and also low back pain. Um, and probably need a whole nother podcast for this, but treatment of fibroids uh, also goes along the same uh, kind of paths that we discussed before, which is the most conservative being pain management, um, hormonal options, so things like birth control, sometimes IUDs, like uh, uh, hormonal IUDs. Um, and there are other treatment options like a uterine artery embolization um, to cut off the blood supply. That's a complicated procedure done by interventional radiologists. And lastly, and the most definitive, are hysterectomies, which um, we as OBGYNs perform uh, in order to remove the uterus, remove the fibroids um, entirely. Now, just an important point is for those women who are desiring fertility, but who have Pain, uh, you know, pain from fibroids refractory or really not responsive to the other treatments, there is a procedure, a surgical procedure called a myomectomy. And that's where you're removing the fibroids from the uterus without removing the uterus itself. Um, now, that procedure can be uh, complicated. Um, however, in certain women, it really is beneficial given that, you know, we, you retain the uterus and childbearing is not affected. So what I'm hearing, we have a lot of problems as ladies. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the important thing is is considering a wide um, uh, differential. And what I mean by that is uh, there are a lot of things that can cause back pain. Yeah. Um, and it's important to realize that there's lots of um, organ systems. So GYN, musculoskeletal, which is what Dr. Mazzari focuses on primarily, um, gastrointestinal. And uh, I mean, luckily... Most physicians are willing to work with one another, and so we call that the interdisciplinary approach. And with chronic back pain, chronic pelvic pain, certainly, uh, that's the approach that's needed. For sure, yeah. You want all your doctors talking to each other. At what point in time do you think a woman should see her doctor for back pain? Is there like a pain threshold? You say, oh, you know, you're having trouble just performing life, then see your doctor? Or is it something they should bring up no matter what? So when, when it comes to pain, unfortunately, too often... You know, the first question that we ask, uh, give me a number, 1 to 10. And although we kind of still use this, uh, it's really not the best way to measure how high someone's pain is. What I, what I like to ask more about is how is this pain affecting your quality of life? If it's just something that's a little bit of a nuisance and, you know, you can't do what you have to do, exercise or sit in a chair at work for a certain amount of time, you can give it more time than if it's significantly affecting your quality of life or to do your job. If it's going on for, I would say, more than six to eight weeks, that's probably a good time to bring it up. Aside from that, if it is causing those neurological symptoms that we described before, numbness, tingling, weakness, bowel bladder issues, balance issues, don't wait. Sure. Yeah, okay. I, I would agree with that. And then from the GYN side, too, I, I would say it's okay to watch at home for a bit if, you know, it's mild. and um, But certainly if it gets worse, uh, seek out an OBGYN if you think it might be GYN-related. Um, but certainly if you have a known history of either ovarian cysts, endometriosis, or, you know, fibroids, if anyone's ever told you that they might suspect that, if you start to have back pain that's affecting your life, I would seek out help earlier rather than later. All right. Well, this was super informative. Thank you both so much for being here. I think having both of your brains at the table has been really informative just to understand back pain as a whole. Um, is there any final notes you want to send us with any ladies or men with back pain? No, not really. I mean, I, I, I think it's great that we did this together. Um, Dr. Joey's a great guy. Um, I'll definitely be sending I agree. Him. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely be sending him a few more patients. I get too many uh, patients who tell me their doctor said it's not the fibroid. Of and course, I yeah. That. I mean, I, uh, that's what I was saying before. And I, I think I think people um, 
really um, are shortchanging themselves when they don't allow uh, really a full evaluation of what might be causing their pain. And so, you know, part of diagnosing these uh, issues is, is listening uh, first and foremost to what the complaints are and to try to narrow down what's going on. So if you're having low back pain, it's a chronic issue, it's affecting your life. Uh, I mean, reach out to your primary care doctor, your OBGYN, uh, so we can diagnose, evaluate, treat, and, and point you in the right direction. Definitely, definitely listening to the patients, but also taking the time to ask the right questions. I think that that's really important. Totally. Yeah, agreed. Well, thank you both. I hope everybody stays back pain free. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. The material provided through this podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.